Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. Yes, we turned a page. We are in Matthew 26. We put the finishing touches on the Olivet Discourse last week. Jesus is preparing his disciples, and he has been for some time. He is preparing them for what is coming. He has talked about a kingdom that is coming. He's talked to them about the destruction of the temple. He spent the last two chapters in our Bible telling them about what is going to come, about how they need to live in anticipation and in awareness, although there will be a delay. The sun is coming again, but when he comes, he will come in glory and he will come in judgment. Uh, he came the first time in humility. He will come again in glory. He came the first time to receive the judgment for sin. When he comes again, he comes to judge sin among all of the nations. And now as we come into Matthew 26, not only do we kind of turn the page figuratively in our Bible, now we come onto the final scene. Everything in Matthew's gospel has been building, has been setting the stage for this. The act of redemption that will save sinners. The sacrifice, the atoning work of Christ that will make restitution and reconciliation with a holy God possible. As we come into Matthew 26, you have to understand the days are short. The cross is in view. And everyone in this scene is preparing for the Passover. And when we talk about preparing for the Passover, today we're not talking about a room or a meal. Today we're talking about preparation that has already begun, some of it, before the disciples took their first breath. So as we come to Matthew 26, we're going to look at how uh, God prepared for the Passover, and we're going to see three very different responses kind of unfold in this. I'm going to read the first five verses of Matthew 26 to set the stage for where we're going today. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that like to be prepared. We manage, we evaluate, we make spreadsheets and timetables. And Lord, much of that has benefit and wisdom. Lord, every page of your word shows us that you are a God of unlimited sovereign power and that you have ordained every step and every part and every piece of your creation. And as we come into the final days of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, remind us again of who you are and why we worship you. You are the God who deserves and demands all of our praise with all that is in us. So today, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, not from our imagination, not from our experience, not from our hopes, but from the truth that you have poured out to us in your word. And then God, through your grace and the power of your spirit, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, give us hearts of obedience. And we are wholly dependent on you for that whole process from start to finish. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are people that like to be prepared. When we're going into a test, we feel much better if we know what is going to be on the test. The more thorough the study guide, the more confident the student as they go in. The athlete who prepares well feels confidence as they approach the starting line because they know that they will run well. 
Uh, you saw in that video that in the afternoons, our Yugo team did VBS. And to say that they went into that with the bare minimum of information would probably be something of an understatement. They knew that AVBS was happening in some capacity. They knew that there were songs and skits, and they knew that someone from Yugo would be there to help them. And really, up until the day we left, that's about all they knew. Uh, they got some songs, they practiced them in the car on the way down. They prepared admirably. They did everything that they could with what they had. But that first afternoon, when they stepped into that church, there were a lot of unknowns. Next year, when we go back, some of those unknowns are going to be replaced by a confident expectation of what's going to be in front of them. It's missions work, it's an out of the country, there will always be hiccups, there will always be unknowns. But there will be an expectation that will lead to some confidence as we prepare that next time. Because preparation matters. And right now, Jesus is in the midst of preparing his disciples. If we were to go all the way back to chapter 16, after Peter gives that great confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says that you didn't come up with that on your own, but that my Father revealed it to you. It says from that moment on, he began to prepare them. He began to tell them about his coming suffering and rejection and death. And if you look at chapter 26, verse 1, you can see that he's picked up on that same theme. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know, he has made these things known to them. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's got to be jarring, because where did we just come from? Matthew 24 and 25 that present the Son as this exalted and glorious King who returns in power and honor with His angels and His saints with them, ready to execute judgment over all of the earth. But for right now, what did the disciples need to be prepared for? It wasn't the King's coming. They anticipated that. It wasn't the king's glory. They wanted that. What they needed to be prepared for was the time of the king's coming humiliation. Right now, the king is preparing to go to the cross. And Jesus says, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen in two days. We're most likely late in the evening on Tuesday here. After a full day of ministry in and around the temple, teaching, healing, conflicting with the scribes and Pharisees, condemning their utter failure, and the preparations for the Passover are already underway. And the first response to these that we see is this response of absolute fear. And as we come to verse 3, let's be reminded of the people that have this fearful response. Verse 3 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. We need to be maybe reintroduced to some of those. The chief priests and the elders would be the religious representatives from among the people. Uh, they would have something to do with the religious life. They would be seen as authorities in the lives of the people. And we know that this isn't the first time that they've come into conflict. This isn't the first time that they've gotten together to discuss their hatred of Jesus. This has been a continual theme, not only throughout Matthew's gospel, but throughout all of the gospels. As Jesus' authority grows, as Jesus' influence grows, as Jesus' popularity grows, their hatred grows. He represents a threat to everything that they have and everything that they want to hold desperately onto. 
And so they repeatedly come together to condemn him. But things have come to something of a point here. Now they're gathered in the palace of the high priest, or maybe the courtyard of the residence of the high priest, and we're told that his name is Caiaphas. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel we've been introduced to this man, Caiaphas. And we're told that he is the high priest at this time. Uh, Maybe you're not all that familiar with the, the high priestly office. Aaron was the first high priest over the religious exercise of the nation of Israel. That role was supposed to be passed from father down to eldest son through that Aaronic line all the way down from generation to generation. But by the time we come to this place in Jewish history, you have to understand that the role and the office of the high priest is just about as corrupt as the rest of their worship. Uh, This man Caiaphas had married the daughter of the former high priest, Annas, who had been deposed from power about 15 years before this, and Caiaphas is a wicked man. He's a conniving man, and now we see him brought into this plot to kill Jesus, and we're going to get to some specific things that he says in the moment, but that's the people that are involved in this first part. Now let's look at the plot that they come up with in verse 4. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now look at that. They are not coming together to try the claims of Jesus. These are not people coming together to try and evaluate whether there is any truth or to what degree there is truth in what he is saying. They are coming together for the purpose of killing him. This is premeditated murder with only like this really thin veneer of judicial procedure laid on top of it. But that should provoke a question. How is it that deeply religious men get driven to murder? How is it that men who are convinced and concerned with purity come to the point where they're willing to kill someone? I want you to turn in your Bible to John's Gospel in John chapter 11. And I need you to keep a marker or a finger there because we're going to flip between John and Matthew a couple of times today. In John 11, we're given the narrative of Lazarus being raised from the dead, that miracle where Jesus again shows his authority over life and death itself. And that miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, uh, maybe more than any other specific miracle, becomes kind of this driving force behind the events of the Passion Week. Uh, It spurs the leadership on toward this kind of immediate action. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And now look at John 11 verse 45. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Many people in that village who had been to the edge of the tomb, who had heard him say, Lazarus, come out from there, who had seen what he did, now started believing in him. But look at what happens. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid because now there is a direct threat to their power. As the people believe, Christ magnifies and their influence diminishes. Their position, their power, their place is threatened. And now look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas comes to the point where he justifies murder, at least outwardly, by saying it's for the greater good. 
He says, you dummies, don't you understand? All we have to do is kill one man for the sake of the nation. And isn't it better, after all, that one man should die than that the whole nation should be taken away? Do you see the evil in that? Willing to justify murder to preserve their position. But look at verse 51. It says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. As Caiaphas speaks out that evil premeditated murder, it says that God was even behind what he said. Because as it turns out, it is better that one man should die than the whole nation, but not for a political nation. It is better that one man, in fact, it is only fitting and only possible that one perfect one should die so that others can be brought to salvation. Now, Caiaphas had no intention of communicating that. God speaks through Balaam's donkey, and now God speaks through a wicked and corrupt and fallen high priest. Now, flip back to Matthew, but again, Keep a finger or a marker or something in John because we're going to go back there. Because look at what they say in verse 5. They plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. They want to keep this on the down low and they want to kill him. And back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 5, but they say, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Remember, this is Jerusalem in the Passover week. It is swollen to several times its normal size. And the people, by the hundreds of thousands, have embraced Jesus. They have gone out in mass to see him come into the city. By this point, teaching and preaching in the temple, healing in the temple over Monday and Tuesday, thousands have likely seen what he has done. And they are terrified of what could happen if they take Jesus publicly. There would be a riot. And political unrest is the one thing that Rome will not handle, and they will come in and they will squash it mightily. And so they say, this will not happen during the feast, or there will be an uproar among the people. And we forget sometimes. We read this and we see the coloring pages from Sunday school or or the entries into a theological journal somewhere. We forget that the human part of this story There are real human thoughts, feelings, and emotions into this historical circumstance. They crave things like power, money, jealousy, greed. All of those things play into this, and so too does the terror of a mighty oppressor who could crush them. And so all of these things are swirling in their mind, and these fearful men, they assume that they are able to control what happens. They know what the outcome they want, and they think they can guide things towards making that a reality. But before we go any further, we have to be reminded that this is all unfolding exactly according to God's plan. There is tremendous tension in this passage, not just because the glorious King of Kings has said that he is going to die, but you have two competing statements here. Two conflicting wills. Jesus that says, this will happen in two days, and these men that say, this absolutely will not happen. And the will of God, as it always does, wins out. Jesus is not going to die one moment earlier or later than God intends. And if we're paying attention, we've seen that as we read through our gospel accounts. Way back in Matthew Matthew chapter 2, Herod thought he could put an end to all of this by killing all of the baby boys. You remember that? But God preserved. 
If you go through the other gospel accounts, there's various times where uh, the people want to seize Jesus, take him by force, and make him king, but that wasn't the time to be king. Uh, If you were to read in Luke chapter 4, he's teaching in the synagogue, and they're enraged, and they take him to the edge of the cliff, and they're going to throw Jesus over the edge of the cliff, and it says he just passed through their midst and went away. Uh, Why? Uh, Why do those things come to the brink but then not happen? Well, I think it's because of what Jesus says in John 10 that he lays down his life, that he alone has the authority to lay it down, and he alone has the authority to take it back up again. And all through this, behind every scene, working in every part, is the sovereign will of God, even as man rages against that plan. So the preparation for the Passover has already begun. And really, it began before the foundations of the world were set. A kingdom was prepared. A savior was willing. Saints were written in the book of life. All that happened before Adam took his first breath. But right now we're at the point in human history where salvation is going to be accomplished for God's people. We saw the fear. We saw the response of dread that something might take away their position. And now we're going to change the scene and we're going to see a response of faith. And to show us this, Matthew actually takes us back in time a bit to the events before the Passion Week. And if we look at verse 6, the setting changes. Look at Matthew 26, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, stop there for a moment. It says, Jesus is at a place called Bethany, which is a little village a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, again, being absolutely packed with pilgrims, would be short on places to stay. And so Jesus, we're told, would go back and forth between Bethany every evening, and no doubt many people would. They would go do their business in and around the city. They would go buy what they needed to for the Passover. They would go buy the sacrifices, and they would go back and forth from where they were staying. And Bethany is one of those close-in little villages. But the parallel passage in John chapter 12 tells us that this event didn't happen on that Tuesday evening. Matthew is using this to show us something, not to demonstrate a chronology. Matthew is going to show us that although the disciples have been told a great deal, although they've been given a ton of information, they are still failing to understand some very, very critical things. So to get some more depth, in our passage in Matthew, I want you to flip once again to John, this time to John chapter 12. As we go back to John chapter 12, we're going to see a few things here. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So we're given a, a couple of bits of information there. The first thing is the timing. This takes place after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, but before that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're told this is six days before Passover. Remember, in Matthew 26, Jesus says in two days these things were going to happen. So John moves us back a little bit, or Matthew moves us back a little bit in the timeline. We're reminded that Bethany is where Lazarus was raised from the dead, and Lazarus is there actually at this dinner with Jesus. We're told some of the other players that are there, Martha is involved, and Martha is pictured serving, which is fascinating to me, because when we see Martha once again, Martha is serving, and now we're told that Mary is also there. In verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
Matthew tells us when Jesus was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And now we have some details to that. We know that this is in Bethany, and this is six days before Passover. We know Lazarus is there at the table with him. We know that that family of Lazarus that Jesus was so connected with is part of this, that Martha is serving. And we know that Mary is now the one who takes that expensive ointment or perfume, and she uses it to anoint Jesus. Back to, oh, no, let's, let's stay there for a minute. Because that action of Mary, to take that perfume, to anoint the head and the feet of Jesus, uh, creates something of a scandal. Let's stay in John and let's read for just a moment in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? We see that Judas speaks up. Now, he speaks on behalf of the group. We'll see that when we go back to Matthew. Uh, But Judas speaks up with this uh, apparent righteous indignation. Why did you do this? How could you allow this to happen? Don't you know that if you took that and sold it, 300 denarii could have been used to give to the poor? Now, Judas knows the value of things. Keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, But there are some things that are unique when it comes to value based on the culture. If you were to take something like a a Mickey Mantle rookie card and show it to somebody here, we would know that that has tremendous value, or most of us would. If you were to take a little cardboard card back to the ancient Near East and show that to them and tell them that this was worth tens of thousands of dollars, they would look at you like you were absolutely insane because that would have no value in that culture. But there are things that carry their value from century to century and culture to culture, things like gold. Gold has always been valuable. Precious stones, gems, those have always been valuable. And even then and as it is now, there are perfumes and ointments that are incredibly valuable. A very quick search online showed me to my horror that there are a handful of perfumes out there that are over $10,000 an ounce. I cannot fathom paying something like that for perfume. But at the time of Jesus, there are these perfumes and ointments and balms that are tremendously valuable. Well, there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is is there's no indoor plumbing. Houses, gatherings do not have running water, which means that bathing is not a normal daily part of life. Now, you take a nice gathering of nice people like this. You put us in this building in the middle of summer with no air conditioning and no baths for the last week. My guess is that perfumes and ointments start to feel a little bit more valuable to us at that point, don't they? So this ointment has great value, and we're told that it's worth about 300 denarii, and we know that a denarius was equal to about a day's wage at this point. So think of this as what she has just used to anoint Jesus is roughly a year's worth of labor. And Judas knows exactly what things are worth. Now, he doesn't care anything about the poor. It says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, not only could this have been used to feed the poor, Judas is saying, this really cost me 300 denarius, but he's not alone. Turn back to Matthew 26 now. Matthew 26, verse 8 And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Judas says, as he speaks up on behalf of the disciples, why are you doing this? And the disciples don't go, Judas, how could you say such a thing? 
they feel the exact same way. Now, they had seen Jesus comment on caring for the poor. They had seen Jesus tell a rich man to sell all that he had and give to the poor. So their response might be sort of understandable, but they are not patient. They are absolutely indignant. They are disgusted by what is happening. They see this as an absolute waste. Why this waste? This is a huge sum of money that could have been used to do any number of very good things for those in need, and Jesus absolutely sets them straight. He has to. He offers a fairly strong correction, and it's not just because they were mean to Mary, who is a nice girl. It is because they absolutely fundamentally miss what is happening here. Look at verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Let's be clear. He is not saying that it is not good or necessary to take care of the poor. In the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly condemned for their callous, careless, heartless treatment of those in need. Jesus affirms that it is good to care for the physical needs of people. The church demonstrates tangible love as we love others, as we give our resources to help those who cannot help themselves. That is not what he is saying. He is commenting on a matter of priority here. There are going to be many opportunities to feed the poor. There are not going to be many opportunities to minister to the King of Kings. What he's saying is that Mary has chosen the important thing. It's striking to me because, once again, she is commended because Mary is able to understand the true value of things. If we were to go back to Luke chapter 10 and we were to see Jesus interacting, we were to see Martha busy serving in the background, where is Mary in that story? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what does he say? She has chosen the more important thing. It's not that serving is evil. It's necessary. It's not that serving in and of itself is sinful. It was a good, kind, generous thing to do. But Mary recognized something that Martha did not, and that is that the Savior was there and that she had the opportunity to sit at the feet of the one who had all wisdom. And she does the same thing here. She recognizes the greater thing. And he says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. See, there's another reason why these ointments and perfumes had such great value. It's because they didn't have the ability to refrigerate, preserve, keep bodies in the same way that we do. When death happened, decay follows soon after, and with decay comes all of the smells of death. And so bodies would be washed, lovingly cared for, respectfully treated, and then rubbed with ointments, packed with herbs that would keep those smells down. And so you see, as the scent of this perfume fills the house, it would be something that everyone was familiar with. Maybe not this expensive, but it's the smell of death in this place. And every family, every person had smelled that, had come into contact with that. So this perfume in all its extravagance was meant for a burial. And Mary is using it to prepare the body of Jesus. The disciples call it a waste because they cannot understand what is coming. Would we say that it was a waste for a family to spend money on a casket, even thousands of dollars? They're expensive. For a family to spend money on a burial plot? No, those are necessary things at the proper time. 
it would not have been a waste to see this ointment used to prepare the body of a precious loved one. How then could it be a waste to prepare the body of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the most precious person that Mary knew? And somehow, to what degree, we don't know. I don't want to specify exactly what Mary knew. I think that would be foolish. But to whatever degree, Mary recognized that something greater was here and that this was an opportunity for honor. That something was happening here and that this was the appropriate time and the disciples missed that. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Something that happened in a little town, two miles from Jerusalem, has been told and told and told. As the body of Jesus is prepared, the body of the Savior to die for the sins of you and I. And as we tell that story, that gospel story, that is the death is central to that, we tell of Mary and this demonstration of her faith. It's a remarkable, beautiful thing. So we've seen this response of fear from the religious leaders. We've seen this response of faith from Mary. And the final response that we're going to see is one of failure. Absolute, abject failure. As we come to verse 14, we're introduced to the man who will hand him over to be killed. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, that should strike us. Stop. That, that is meant to stop us. This is not an angry Pharisee or Sadducee afraid of losing their place. This is not one of the Sanhedrin. This is not uh, one of the masses of people who's disillusioned or confused about who Jesus is. This is one of the twelve. This is one of the ones who heard him teach and preach with all authority and all power. This is one of the ones who was sitting on that boat with him when he calmed the winds and the waves with a word. This is one of the ones with a firsthand seat to see him heal the leper, the blind, the deaf, to raise the dead with nothing more than a word from his power. This is one of the ones who saw him always act with kindness and compassion and tenderness to the outcast, to the lost, to the ones that demonstrated even the smallest glimpse of faith. This is one who has not only surface knowledge, but intimate relationship with Christ. Read that and let that sink in. This isn't the betrayal of a stranger or an enemy. This is the betrayal of a friend. And his name is synonymous now with betrayal. His name was Judas Iscariot. Iscariot either being where he was from or a political movement that he was involved with. And we move then quickly from the man to his motives He went to the chief priests and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? We don't know whether there had been been previous conversations. At the very least, Judas would have been very well known as being a close associate of Jesus. And now he knows exactly who he is going to and what they are planning on doing. Remember, way back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. There is no ignorance here. Uh, Judas cannot claim ignorance as to these men or their motives or what they're wanting to do. He walks in with his eyes wide open and he asks, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? How much is it worth to betray the Son of Man? What's the price of betrayal? 
Maybe some of you played a similar game going, growing up. What will you give me if I fill in the blank with whatever random, odd, or disgusting thing? When I was a child, uh, the bus stop for school was literally right outside of our house. And so every morning we would have a gathering of kids basically on my front lawn as we waited for the bus. And one day we found a slug. And the game quickly came to, what will it take for someone to lick the slug? And there's no great honor in me telling you that I was the kid. <laughs> and that the price was nothing more than the recognition and cheers of my peers. It, it's not a good thing. Uh, there's, there's a saying, everyone's got their price, right? But isn't the truly shocking thing not so much what people will do for a price, but ultimately how low that price winds up being? Almost as well known as the man who betrayed Jesus is the sum that was worth it. They paid him 30 pieces of silver. It might sound like a lot if you're going through and weighing the tables for the price of silver nowadays, but all it takes is a quick trip back to Exodus chapter 21. You don't have to turn there now. We're short on time. But Exodus chapter 21 that deals with how you think through and treat and evaluate slaves and Exodus 21:32 says, If an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Under the law, 30 pieces of silver is the assigned value of the life of a slave, not even the life of a functioning slave, a slave injured or even dead. Jesus says, What will you give me? What is it worth to you to have the opportunity to get rid of Jesus and their response is, it's worth less than the price of a functioning slave. And don't forget for a moment that Judas is a man that knows what things are worth. He saw that alabaster vial broken, and he immediately knew 300 denarii down the drain. Judas knew exactly what they were offering him. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Does that shock you at all? No hesitation, no scoffing at the price, no bargaining. That was all it took. The Son of Man, the King of Kings, is about to go to a cross, being valued as nothing more than a ruined slave. There is evil in this passage. And yet we're reminded again of how evil can be used for good there are scheming leaders, men who are willing to kill Jesus Christ simply for the sake of keeping their position. There's a man willing to betray a friend, his master, for the price of a slave. But we know in just two days that the Son of God is going to go to a cross and die a death that he does not deserve. But the sovereignty of God is all over this passage. They say this will not happen during the festival, and God says it will happen exactly at the appointed time. The one who betrayed him wasn't a secret. It wasn't a surprise. If God knew the exact timing of the cross, he knew every step that would lead the son to the cross. And it brings back to mind what Joseph said way back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As Joseph speaks to his brothers who had betrayed him, sold him into slavery, counted him as dead. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
It is worth remembering that in a world that seems out of control, that in a world that seems like evil is rewarded to a greater degree than ever before, that God's sovereignty has not wavered. It's worth remembering in your life and in my life when the pain becomes so unbearable, when the sorrow, the sadness, the loneliness, the loss, the grief, whatever it might be, piles up to the point where you think there cannot possibly be good anywhere in this. That the God of all creation in his infinite wisdom and sovereign power is able to use all things for good, for the eternal good of his people and the eternal glory of himself. So three things for us as we close today. First of all, great question. What's the value of Christ? To Judas and to those wicked men, it was the price of a slave. He was an obstacle to be cleared out so that they could keep their power. To Mary, he was worth the most expensive thing that she or her family owned. What's the value of Christ to you? And here's the thing, you can't answer that question until you actually know Jesus Christ as the Bible presents him. This one who is not just a teacher, but the very word of God. This one who's not just a healer, but the God of all power with the ability to create in his words. The one who is not only the Savior, but the Son of God, not only the Prince of Peace, but the King of Kings, able to rule the nations. When you know that Christ, then you can rightly value that Christ. Do you know Christ enough to assign him the right value? Second, we need to be people that are examining our priorities. What are our priorities? There's a lot to be said for the nature of Mary's worship in this. It was the best that she had. It was the most loving, the most extravagant, the most valuable thing that she could think of to offer. Now you pull back for a minute. Did Jesus Christ need that to make him more special? The one who existed from before eternity began, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who existed in the praise of angels, did he need that? Was it even worthy of him? No. And yet, he says it was a beautiful thing that she did. I wonder how often my worship is a beautiful thing. And I wonder how often my worship is kind of this pinched, controlled, confined expression. Mary gave everything in the moment because she saw an opportunity to assign Christ the value that he deserved. How often do I sing trying to plan out my sermon for time rather than pouring out my praise to God? How often do I give not just financially, but of myself, my effort, my time, my resources, measuring what it will cost me rather than simply for the sake of worshiping a Savior who's worthy of everything anyway. And finally, what's the price of obedience? It is very easy to look at Judas and say, you fool. 
Who trades the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver? Who trades eternity for just a little bit of cash in the moment? There's a question there that we had better all ask, and that is, what is the price of our obedience? What is the price of our allegiance? Or maybe said differently, what this week have I traded for my obedience? I would do the right thing, but... It might cost me the relationship. It might cost me the job. It might cost me the time. It might cost me the convenience. I would be the odd one out. I would miss the big game. I would lose out on my financial security, whatever it might be. Everybody's got a price. What's the price of your obedience to what God has called you to be and do? Let's pray. Lord, that's an uncomfortable question. Because very often I confess that my obedience hinges on what's convenient for me. Lord, will you strike that down in us? Will you help us to have this high and exalted picture of who you are, this crystal clear image of our mind of the unending absolute glory of God? so that everything else fades in comparison and it is worth everything that is in us. Lord, help us to worship you in our whole lives because it's worth it. Lord, forgive us of those many things that have taken us away from our right response to you. The 30 pieces of silver that we saw as more valuable than worship to the King of Kings. And bring us to the place where we assign you the great value that you are due. And we surrender our whole lives and hearts. Lord, we praise you because you are worthy to be praised. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.